0: Uh, Open your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 15, Matthew 15, really where we left off last week with the uh, Syrophoenician woman, and uh, we want to look at uh, the uh, feeding of the multitude here, and that's page 865 of your pew Bibles, 865, and with that, if you will, stand with me out of reverence for God's holy word. Starting in verse 29, Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee. He went up on the mountain and sat down there. Great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put them at his feet, and he healed them. So that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, the blind seeing. And they glorified the God of Israel. Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I am unwilling to send them away hungry, lest they faint on the way. And the disciples said to him, "Where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? Jesus said to them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven, and a few small fish. Directing the crowd to sit down on the ground. He took the seven loaves and the fish, and having given thanks, he broke them, and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied, and they took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were four thousand men besides women and children, after sending away the crowds, he got into the boat and went to the region of Magadan. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we're grateful for Your love and Your mercy. As always, we ask You to open our hearts. We would receive Your Word, our mind that we would understand it, our eyes that we would see Your glory and Your kingdom, our ears that we would hear and heed Your message, our mouth we'd speak the truth of the gospel to ourselves, to one another in love, to the world who so desperately needs it, to our hands and our feet that we will go in obedience to Christ. May I decrease so that You can increase. Name your son. We pray, Amen. You may be seated. A well, little over six years ago, me and the missus bought our very first house right here in Frankfort, Kentucky. Right, we finally bought a house. We lived in the parsonage for about six years and moved here. Finally, bought our, our own house. It was really exciting. Uh, it taught us a lot a lot about our, our about each other. And that is that I don't care where we live so long as she is happy. And that pretty much became true, right? <laughs> you know, this is not the house I would have picked because she rejected those that I picked. But nevertheless, we bought a house, right? And by the way, I need to give you an updated picture. See, here we're happy. See how happy she is. Six years later, this is the picture. Uh, I have to show you this. She's back in the nursery, so it's less fun when I make fun of her. She's not here. Uh, but I have to show you. this picture I took yesterday. And the reason this picture is important is I went out to run. And Rosem get out to run. She goes, oh, before you leave, I need you to go outside and I need you to uh, walk in such a way so that when you take a picture of the house, there's no footsteps in the snow. So I had to walk out the back door, round the fence line, right? So I cut out the fence line so you wouldn't see my steps because that would ruin the picture. So having done all that work, you are going to see this picture and you're gonna like it, okay? took like a dozen of them from every angle, without footprints, I might add, and it was cold outside. I was out there to run not to not to take pictures. What were you we talking about? Oh, yeah, we bought a house, and well I, th- I think it's time I think it's time for us to sell the house. I do um, you know it's been a good, good house for six years it's time for us to sell the house. i don't know if you know much about the house we bought, but um, it's, it's what's known as a Sears house. And that is that uh, many moons ago, uh, before jars of clay were around, that um, uh, someone was going through a Sears catalog. For you millennials, that's, it's a, like, like a book that you could order things if you sent a uh, address stamp and they would send it to you. Or you, if you were... If the mail didn't run to your house because you're from Owen County, you would actually go to Sears in Florence and get it or Frankfurt. Anyways, so, so you could order houses out of a catalog. I don't know if any of you all remember that or not. Or I certainly don't because I'm a Jars of Clay fan. And, and this house was ordered out of catalog. There it is right there. That, that's, 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 it's not the same exact house we have, but it's what I could find on the Internet years ago. And I printed this off, gave it to my wife as a gift. So she's going to like it and you're going to put up with it. Right. It's a Sears house. Um, Or or one of those companies, you could just order a house and and all the pieces come with it and they're numbered, you put them, it's like Legos and Lincoln Logs, right? That's the way it is. And now our house has been renovated over the decades, but for the most part, it is still uh, a a Sears house. In fact, a few years ago for our anniversary, um, I was cheap and feeling cheap, and uh, I thought instead of spending money, why don't we go look for our house? And I found that Cincinnati has tons of these Sears houses. So we went to a neighborhood, and, and my wife really got into all this. She said, well, look, that's this type of house, and this is this type of house. Bought a little book with all the examples in it and everything. And we finally found our house. Here we are. See how happy she was. And, and that is our house, right? Look, I mean, there's some differences. Again, there's renovations and changes made, but that, that is our house, right? She actually sent me this uh, this morning, last night, sometime. I think it's for sale now, or something like that. I, I don't know, but but I, I have decided that as 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 historic as our house might be, and the cute little story it might is, it is time to sell our house. But let me tell you why. We we found this house. This house, another Sears house, looks just like ours. It is for sale. And It is for sale, for eight hundred fifty thousand dollars it's time for us to sell our house. (laughs) So I don't know what the uh, law says about this, but let me just say, if you would like to buy our house, we'll give you a deal. For $800,000, you can buy our house, okay? That is a little more than what we paid for it, okay? Just a little, a couple hundred thousand dollars more, but a significant increase of what we would make in profit. And I just don't understand, it's the same house, right? It's the same house. You can go to Virginia right now. You can buy this house. You get on Zillow or wherever app you want to use. You can buy this house for $850,000. Actually, you can't. It's pending. So you're going to have to wait and see if that falls through. But you can get this house right now, $850,000. Why is it that our house isn't worth $850,000? There's three reasons why. It's location. Location and location. In fact, whenever Amanda and I were, were looking to move uh, to, to a community near here, we were interviewing at another church before, before East Frankfurt came around. We, we were looking at houses. We, we knew we were going to have to buy a house. And, and the housing market of this community was double of what it was in Frankfurt at the time. I know this because we, we priced those houses and then we bought our house, right? And I mean, the, the other community was double of what it is that we, we bought ours. I remember thinking there's no way anyone in this world could ever afford a house and, and live here, right? Why? Because the, the most important thing when it comes to real estate is the location of the property. You could take our house and you could literally move it to Virginia where, that, uh, where this house is and it will be worth $850,000. You could take their house, which in Virginia is worth nearly a million dollars, and bring it here. It's not worth that at all. Why? Location, location, location. The same is true when it comes to reading and interpreting the Bible. Chances are, if you've been trekking with us over these last several weeks, you, we, we read this story, you're thinking, preacher, we have a problem. We've already done this story. We've already done the feeding of the, the multitude, and, and you would be right. We've already done this story before. In fact, that those opening verses, verses 29 to 31, we've already done that story too. But what sets this these passages from the previous is those three essentials. Location, location, location. Let's start with the multitude here in verses 29 to 31. 31, And you'll see that this is a summary statement. Matthew loves his summary statements where he says, look, Jesus did a bunch of other stuff. Here's an example of some of that he did. It was really cool. Moving on to something else. Matthew does that all the time. In fact, the first reference we have to Jesus doing miracles is a summary statement. Matthew chapter 4. See if this sounds familiar with what it is we just read. Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every kind of disease, every kind of sickness among the people. The news about him spread throughout all Syria and they brought to him all who were ill, those suffering various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. Large crowds followed him from Galilee, into capitalist, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. Does that sound familiar? You can read verse 29 to 31, and it's going to say essentially the same thing. It's got the same information. Jesus goes on from there. He walks beside the Sea of Galilee. He goes up the mountain and he sits down. And the great crowds follow him. He begins to heal them, the blind, the lame, the sick, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they're amazed at what it is Jesus doing. Two different passages from two ends of the book saying the exact same thing. Either Matthew forgot he had written that or there is a reason why he's doing this. The difference between what he says in chapter 4, what he writes in chapter 15 is location, location, location. In fact, there's more details here that seem repetitive. Notice there again in uh, verse 29, he went up the mountain and there he sat down. Now, where in Matthew's gospel have we seen Jesus ascending to the mountains by which he would teach the people? It's the Sermon on the Mount. But what is different from this passage with what we've already seen is the location here. As we saw last week, Jesus is in, the, is in towns that are predominantly Gentile. In fact, a Gentile woman, the Syrophoenician woman, comes to Jesus, right? Remember, she says, help my daughter, and then it becomes, help me, right? She's a Gentile, and Jesus goes through this whole process about, I've been called to the children of Israel not to the Gentiles. And, and she has that example of faith for us. And so that is still the context we have here. He is in the land of the Gentiles. And, and, and what Matthew shows, this is what he did with the Jews, he now does here. And so, like before, he heals everybody. Large crowds come and they lay down at his feet, those who are crippled and lame and mute and everything else. This is the language of worship. It's the language of, of, of desperation. We've seen this over and over again, haven't we? And notice there in verse 31 that he is called the God of Israel. Remember, the location of the passage is vital for our interpretation. What you have are Gentiles professing Christ as the God of Israel. You're not going to really find this phrase very often in Matthew's gospel. The most Jewish of the four gospels. But even they, these Gentiles, recognize that Jesus is the promised Messiah who has come into the world. That's striking, isn't it? Despite the historic hostility between Jews and Gentiles, Jesus willingly touches, he heals, and he teaches the Gentiles. Now, Jesus has had some interaction with Gentiles in Matthew's gospel thus far, but not on this scale, not as purposeful as it is here. Jesus goes out of his way to target the Gentiles. Notice we go from the multitude to the meal in verses 32 to 39. Now, this story should sound familiar, shouldn't it? Here we have Jesus surrounded by a crowd, and he feeds a multitude with a little boy's lunch. It's the same story. In fact, we just read it a few weeks ago. In Matthew chapter 14, Jesus feeds 5,000 people. In chapter 15, he feeds 4,000 people. In chapter 14, Jesus refuses out of compassion for them to send them away, which is what the disciples want, who, who serve as a Baptist committee, I should remind you. And, and he says, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to feed them. So he takes a little boy's lunch and he feeds them. In chapter 15, he, he won't send them away out of compassion for them, but instead he takes a little boy's lunch and he feeds them. One of the main differences you're going to see here, and I don't want to go into all the details because, because, really, you can go back to our study of chapter 14 and get the details. The biggest difference is really is the leftovers, right? The word for basket in chapter 15, and there's seven left, is slightly different than the word used in chapter 14. In Chapter 14, those are smaller baskets, and, and what's left over are 12 Uh, baskets of food. In chapter 15, our passage, it's a word describing larger baskets, and there are seven left over. It is very possible, given the size difference, that the same amount of food is left over in chapter 14 of the feeding of the 5,000 and chapter 15 with the feeding of the 4,000. The difference was the size of the containers that they were put in. However, what is significant is the number of baskets, 12 and 7. It's not an accident, I don't think, that when Jesus is feeding the Jews, what is left over are 12 baskets corresponding to the 12 tribes of Israel. When Jesus is predominantly feeding Gentiles, what is left over are seven baskets, which corresponds to the seven days of creation. Thus, what we see when you put the two stories together is on the one hand, God is the God of Israel and Jesus is their Messiah. And here in chapter 15, we see that God is the God of the world, of the nations, and Jesus is their Savior. It's the same message, two different groups. So then in the time that remains, I want us to explore uh, the, the meaning of the text, the meaning of the text. Why would Matthew give us the same narrative essentially twice? There are options, aren't there? Maybe the disciples need another reminder, right? That's possible. They, they, they forgot already of all the things that Jesus could do. After all, they come to Jesus and they say, What are we going to do? Well, if we've never fed a multitude with a little boy's lunch. How are we going to solve this riddle, Jesus? And maybe they need reminders. After all, in all my years of ministry, let me tell you, Christians do not need to be reminded of the basic truths of Scripture. <laughs> let me tell you, I'm so glad we don't need that, right? No, that's not the case at all, is it? In fact, one of my favorite quotes of Martin Luther in his uh, commentary in Galatians says, this is the truth of the gospel. It is also the principal article of all Christian doctrine, wherein the knowledge of all godliness consists. We agree with that 100%. He says, most necessary it is, therefore, that we should know this article. And then he says, teach it to others and beat it into their heads continually. It's amazing, isn't it? And this is something that's why I love this quote is that Christians believe the gospel and just as soon as they believe it, they forget it the second they walk out these doors. In fact, that reminds me of my cemetery days, right? And I, I could be in Hebrew class. I struggle with Hebrew. And I could be in Hebrew class and all Hebrew made sense, at least what it is we were talking about. How to parse and how this is this sort of verb and that sort of participle and these words mean that. And all. I could do all of that. The second I got back to my dorm, I couldn't remember a word of it. It was just something happened during that, that that walking up the stairs. My classroom is in the same building as my dorm room. It's not like I had a 40-minute walk ahead of me. Same thing when it comes to Christians, right? So, so so maybe, maybe the disciples just forgot. You know, that's that's what Christians do that, you know. Maybe that that's it. Or maybe something else is going on here. Some scholars come to this and say, see, this is evidence that Matthew was written by multiple writers. Scholars do this a lot in order to denigrate and to critique the Bible for what it is. And I don't don't think that's the case at all. I think the repetition is purposeful. The biggest difference between the two narratives is, you should know by now, location, location, location. In the first narrative the predominantly Jewish culture. It is an illustration of the identity of Jesus. He is the Son of God, and with that comes immense implication. And here, in chapter 15, we see yet again who this Jesus is, yet not exclusive to Jews, but to all the nations. And the difference is location. Here we see Jesus is reaching the unreachable, loving the unlovable, Saving the unsavable. He is reaching those whom the Jewish people have largely written off. So what do we do with this text? i want to offer this three things and then we can call it a day. Number one, the gospel is universal. The gospel is universal. We talked about this some last Sunday evening. We looked at the Tyre of Babel, but we as humans are naturally tribal. That is that we prefer to be around people who look like, talk like, Think like and, of course, vote like us. Well, I think I can, I can prove this, right? Whenever you were a kid, again, we, we did this last Sunday evening, I believe. Whenever you're, if you had a teacher who assigned you seats in class, you threw a fit the whole time you were in that class, right? I don't want to sit here, right? But if the next teacher didn't assign you a class, you would find a seat and you would stay in that seat and, and you wouldn't move at all. Why? Because we prefer to segregate ourselves. In fact, right now, right now, what you're having is, is that people who lean blue are fleeing the blue states. People who lean red are, are fleeing to red states. And we've seen this in the recent census. And, and, and you, you, sociologists can track this. People from California going to Idaho, Tennessee, Texas, and Florida. People who are from, from red places like Texas, Tennessee and Florida or going to California, right? I mean, we are choosing to segregate ourselves. We have become tribal people. But let me give you some insight on this. You could write this down back to your body because it is true, and it will always be true. You and I, no matter how old we get, never leave high school. We never leave high school. You remember, you remember high school, right? Uh, I mean, I struggled. Uh, I, I was the first class to graduate from the new high school in Owen County, okay? It's not so new now because I'm a Jars of Clay fan. But anyways, um, you know, that was, that was you know, decades ago. But, but in the old high school, you had four hallways, the freshman, the sophomore, the junior, and the senior and you dare not cross those hallways, unless you're a band person. <laughs> we didn't want you in our class. You were, you were I mean, it, there was a band room and, and they, they went over there. You band people are gonna come meet me after the service. Whenever I went to ask my wife to, to, if she'd go out with me, um, I, 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 I first went to the band, she was in color guard. You don't care about that. Anyways, but in the new high school, they got rid of all that. I'm like, well, now where do I belong, right? And you know what happened. Within the first week, we all found our tribes. My group of guys, we met here before class started every morning. Whereas those other groups, they they met over here. We all found our tribes and our locations. We never leave high school. When you walked into your new job, however long ago it was, you immediately began to look for people who you thought you could build a relationship with and you started to size people up. We humans are Tribal, but the beauty of the gospel is that it is not bound or subject to man made artificial boundaries. This is why Christianity spreads through proclamation and not through bloodshed. Unlike most religions, we go throughout the world pleading people to come. And so we have missionaries who go to foreign nations, not as Europeans. Rather, we adopt certain cultural customs because the gospel isn't bound by Americanism. In fact, it becomes dangerous when the gospel is defined by a certain culture. It is cross-cultural. It is transcendent. Therefore, the only thing that will truly bring unity to this broken world is good news. And the only good news that will bring unity is the gospel of Jesus. Here we have Jesus, a full-blooded son of Judah, descendant of David, heir to the throne of Israel among the Gentiles, preaching the same message to them as he would in the heart of the Jewish temple. The gospel is universal. It is not bound, like our house, to location, location, location. It is why from the very beginning we have seen that we are to go to the nations and preach Christ. And by the way, if that is true when we cross the nations, it is true when you cross the streets. Amen. The gospel is universal. And we dare not corrupt it with our tribalism. So when we corrupt it with our tribalism, it becomes less of the gospel. Secondly, the gospel heals. Maybe here this morning you have a past that you are quite ashamed of. Maybe you have a secret that is shameful, and if anyone knew about it, you fear their opinion of you might change. Maybe you feel like you've done too much, gone too far, sinned beyond all hope. Maybe you feel as if your sin is unforgivable, your past is unforgettable, and your regret keeps you up all night. It's just too strong. This text is for you because Jesus grew up in a culture where they all believed that about the sort of people Jesus is healing here. The Gentiles are wicked. The Gentiles are pagan. The Gentiles aren't us. The Gentiles are unworthy of grace. The Gentiles are beyond hope. Don't go around those people. Don't cross those tracks. Don't do that sort of thing. Don't be around them. Don't be friends with them. You would never do that as a good Jewish boy. hear Jesus. He doesn't wait for the Gentiles to come to him. He proactively goes to them. Matthew demonstrates the opposite of Jewish culture here. Again, the most Jewish of the four Gospels. He shows us here that no sin is beyond the reach of grace if we will, as these people do, come to His feet. They bring to Jesus the lame, the sick, the demonized, the mute, the blind, the crippled. And Jesus, each and every one of them, Extends the hand of grace. Just as he did with those with perfect Sunday school attendance records. The gospel heals. And what we've seen in our exploration of the miracles of Jesus is that Jesus is is, is presented as more than humanitarian, but rather in the miracles are a picture of grace. I'm the leper who is outcast. I'm the centurion and the servant. I'm the woman with the issue of blood. I'm the one desperate to encounter Jesus, desperate to be liberated, desperate to be healed, desperate for Jesus. And so it is if you are here this morning thinking that somehow you are outside the limits of God's love. The good news of this text is location, location, location means nothing in the kingdom of God's real estate. Thirdly and finally, the gospel corrects. The reality is, if points one and two are true, there may be some here who struggle with point three. We will say, I believe the gospel is universal. We will say that the gospel is for everyone. But then when we see that the gospel demonstrates it is for everyone, we start to pull back. Yeah, but first you got to prove yourself to me. You won't find that in the Bible. Maybe you're in the opposite situation as the Gentiles. Maybe you can relate more with the Jews. Of course, Jesus came to heal people like me. Of course, Jesus came to teach people like me. Of course, I'm a pretty good guy. I got it. I, I've been baptized and I grew up in the church and I, I've done all the things. Jesus must be really proud of me. So of course, I get the benefits of grace. And so when you see those with a checkered past, you begin to question, is it good enough? Growing up in a small town, and even pastoring in a small town, you see this all the time. You see this all the time. If grace proves sufficient for me, then we start to hesitate. Will it prove hesitant for others? The problem with religion is that it is easier to see the errors of other people than it is to see our own. We look through a lens of binoculars rather than glasses into a mirror. We think, well, grace may save them, but it's going to take a little longer. That is not what you see in the gospel. Are you... As gracious to others as Christ has been to you. Are we a people of the gospel? Consider the, the, the pervert, the ex-con, the porn addicted, the abusive ex-husband, the deadbeat dad, the scoundrel, the manipulative mother, the envious, the hurting, the struggling, the angry. Will we show the same grace to those that we would expect Christ to show us? And the more broken of a society we become, the more vital this truth is. Christ proactively goes to those that his society had outcasts. Because the kingdom of God is for them too. Are we the people of the gospel? Location, location, location. In repeating essentially the same stories, Matthew shows us that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Therefore, worry less about if the gospel will reach them, those people, and rather come and let it reach you. By faith, believe that despite your past, your struggles, your addictions, Jesus can and today will rescue you. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. You see, if Jesus can love this crowd, He can love this crowd. If He can engage that culture, He can engage this culture. If grace is sufficient for them, it is sufficient for us. Grace knows no limits. Isn't that what we sing? Dark is the stain, that we cannot hide what can we do to wash it away look there is flowing a crimson tide brighter than snow you shall be today grace grace god's grace grace that will pardon and cleanse within grace grace god's grace grace that is greater than all our sin. I don't know what your struggle is here this morning, what brings you here this morning, but I do know grace knows no limits. If you will come in this time of invitation. Let's pray. My father asked you would be so kind as to...